This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing how the United States Navy is orienting itself toward long-term great power competition and adapting to meet rapidly evolving challenges in the modern security environment. Joining me in the studio and returning to Deep Dish is Admiral John Richardson, who is the Chief of Naval Operations for the U.S. Navy. And as some of our listeners may be aware, the Chief of Naval Operations is the highest ranking officer in the Navy. Welcome, Admiral Richardson. It's great to have you back on Deep Dish. Brian, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I know that you just got back from China and that you had a number of high-level meetings um, in China, including with your counterpart, Vice Admiral Shen Jinglong of the PLA Navy. Um, you called these uh, discussions constructive and candid on, uh, on Twitter. Can you share a little bit about um, what you talked about and what were the important outcomes of that discussion? Well, first, uh, let me just say it's great to be here again. And uh, during my trip to China, uh, we had uh, great discussions with some pretty senior leaders. You mentioned uh, Admiral Shen Jinlong, my counterpart. Also met with uh, General uh, Li Zhuocheng, who's sort of the chairman of their Joint Chief of Staff, also on the Central Military Committee. Uh, we visited their re- uh, research institute. We visited their command college. We visited the Eastern Theater Command. And so we had a chance to talk to some very, very senior leaders uh, in, the, uh, in the PLA. And throughout, uh, we emphasized a couple of points, one being, hey, these types of conversations are very important, right? It's important that uh, even if we have differences, uh, that it's important to understand each other's intent, to try and get a deeper understanding of each other's thinking. Uh, Then uh, also uh, the aim of our conversation should always be in risk reduction, okay, so that we can – as we uh, pursue common interests, as we manage differences – We want to do so in a way of minimal risk uh, so that we don't have something, uh, a miscalculation or something uh, flare up. And so uh, tried to make uh, those points at each stop and then in terms of the frankness to identify those areas where we clearly have some differences and we need to be honest about working through those. In the news, we read about some of the the challenges of a more assertive China, of activities like constructing islands and putting putting weapon systems on those islands, claiming jurisdiction over large parts of the South China Sea. And the recently uh, adopted U.S. national defense strategy has emphasized the growing importance of great power conflict. When it comes to China, from a Navy's point of view, what do you see in the Chinese vision of what they're trying to accomplish and um, how that competes with the, the mission and the tasks of the U.S. Navy? Yeah, Brian, if I could uh, just uh, address one aspect of it. The uh, national defense strategy talks about great power competition, uh, not great power conflict. In fact, as we exercise uh, that competition, it would be a major aim to try and do so in a way that avoids conflict, right? Particularly with a nation as uh, as strong as China. Uh, Important point, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so, we just want to start with that uh, because it's sort of a central element of how we do manage uh, our relationship with this growing nation, and uh, in many ways. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that as China has continued to grow, their economy is growing uh, you know, very fast. 
lifting a lot of people out of poverty. At some point, uh, that economic uh, trajectory is going to take them offshore, right? And it happened to us at the end of the uh, 1800s, right? We sort of went offshore and uh, became a, a global nation looking for global markets. Uh, they're doing the same thing. Uh, the important uh, part of our discussion is that uh, while we can't be surprised or even fault them for doing that, uh, we want to all participate in this global economy in a way that's fair for everybody, that uh, respects sovereignty, that is based on a reciprocal uh, fairness and a reciprocal arrangements, uh, that is based on a consistency between words and actions. And so uh, in this way, uh, we can sort of exercise this competition uh, without ever getting to a point of conflict. And so that's really the center of gravity for our discussions. And I know that in those discussions, one of the things that was raised by some of your Chinese counterparts was um, the Chinese interest in, the, in China's position vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And the, the defense ministry, after your meeting, put out a pretty strongly worded summary of the message that was uh, conveyed about uh, Taiwan being an integral part of China. Obviously, this is you know, a message they have a position they've taken for quite some time. It was a core interest of China. Yeah, a core interest of, of China for the exact uh, language. Um, and that uh, they also sent a strong message about China not allowing any outside interference when it comes to, to, to Taiwan. They you know, put this out very strongly, very publicly. Um, I, I'm curious to get a sense of how you responded in that conversation and what your perspective is on that issue. Well, as I said to uh, my counterparts uh, during my visit, if there was one word that would thematically characterize uh, everything that I was delivering, it would be consistency. And uh, so I was pointing out, hey, it, with respect to the United States exercising this relationship, our actions are consistent with our words. We have been consistently present in that part of the world because we as a Pacific nation also have national interests in the South China Sea and in Asia. Uh, and. Uh, you know, our economy depends a tremendous amount on uh, abiding by those rules and norms that govern the free flow of, uh, of uh, goods over the oceans and the access to markets. Um, and so uh, with respect to Taiwan, I made that point as well, that we have a, a position towards Taiwan that's consistent with some documents that we all agree with, the People's Republic of China and uh, that our position with respect to Taiwan has not changed. It is consistent. It remains consistent. And that we would, be, uh, we would oppose any kind of unilateral action on either side of the strait that would disrupt that equilibrium right now. We've talked about some areas where there are a competition and, and, and strongly different interests. In any relationship, there typically are also shared interests. And um, I imagine your conversations in China also covered some of some of those where there are actually outcomes that both the U.S. and China may want to pursue together. What are what are some of those outcomes, and do they provide a pathway for managing the relationship in a way that can avoid conflict over the differences? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you make an excellent point uh, that uh, we certainly want to make sure that we're uh, continuing to progress together those areas where we have common interests 
balance out the discussion so that it doesn't become completely focused on those areas of differences. And so I would say, you know, an area of common interest is that we both share an interest in, in, in becoming increasingly pot prosperous so that we can uh, raise the standard of living for our populations. And this is a kind of a fundamental interest of, uh, of governments. And so I would say that this is a great common interest, which gets us back to that system of rules and behaviors that uh, allow for us both to do that in a way that doesn't become a restrictive, unilateral, or certainly uh, come to a, you know, a point of conflict. Another area which I stressed is that uh, I think we both, uh, in fact, the entire world has uh, an interest in making sure that we can get to a denuclearized Korean Peninsula. And so we've, both the United States and China, uh, signed the UN Security Council resolutions with respect to that uh, dynamic. Uh, we are both engaged in what might be called a uh, pressure campaign to make sure that uh, economically and militarily uh, we are supporting uh, with every molecule of our body a diplomatic solution to that problem. And so this is an area where we converged on common interests and then uh, discussed how we can both get after that more effectively. So I want to shift the conversation to another country that was uh, identified as um, a, as in great power competition <laughs> with the United States, um, namely Russia. Of course, you know there was a recent uh, clash between the Russian Navy and the Ukrainian Navy. And as a matter of fact, to our listeners, there's a f really good uh, deep dish episode in which one of our guests is the Navy Executive Fellow who's here in residence at the Chicago Council on uh, Global Affairs, Tony Chavez, and I encourage you to go listen to that to hear about that specific incident. But Admiral Richardson, what I was, what I'd love to have you do for us is, can you help us understand the bigger picture um, with respect to what Russia is trying to achieve, and in terms of naval power, how does Russia's vision and goals, how do they compete with that of the United States from a naval perspective? This is an area also where I would uh, go back to just discuss sort of rules of behavior. And uh, the, uh, I'll defer to uh, the, uh, the deep dish episode with uh, Commander Chavez to give you much deeper insight into the Russia-Ukraine situation uh, that just emerged. But I think it's just another example where uh, Russia has shown that on an international scale, it's very hard to trust them. Uh, to abide by these rules. And so for them to unilaterally make a move like they did on uh, in international waters uh, against the Ukrainian Navy, um, you know, this is the type of behavior that just completely destabilizes the system. And uh, it's just the most recent in a string of uh, these types of episodes. Uh, we have responded to this rising challenge from Russia in the United States Navy uh, by making sure that we've got uh, a consistent presence in that part of the world, uh, in fact, an increasing presence. This is an area where maybe we're not in, as consistent as other areas. We're actually increasing our presence there in the Mediterranean. Uh, just to make sure that uh, you know, people understand our allies, partners in the region, understand that we're committed to uh, stability uh, in that part of the world. Uh, we recently stood up the second fleet in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, that is a fleet that is focused eastward from Norfolk uh, into the North Atlantic uh, to manage uh, sort of high-end maritime operations there. 
uh, and I'm talking at the carrier strike group level, uh, you know, and, and up. Very complex. And also, uh, that uh, command is uh, dual-hatted as a NATO command, a joint force command in Norfolk, so that we remain, you know, we've got skin in that game uh, with respect to uh, supporting the NATO alliance. And so, uh, these are some of the ways that we've been responding to this. And then I'd like to, to move us more generally beyond these uh, great power competition issues, more generally to the to the tools that the Navy needs in order to uh, carry out its mission, in order to have dominance um, in the work that it, it does. And I understand and have had a chance to, to, to read a new document um, that you authored, A Design for Maintaining Maritime Superiority, version 2.0. Um, can you talk about the, the important central elements of that um, design and its purposes? Well, as you said, it's version two. So version one was issued in 2016. It really, uh, you know, I, although I had the privilege to sign it, it represents the best thinking of uh, really a lot of naval leadership. And so there's a lot of collaboration that went into that. Uh, most of the best ideas in that document are not mine. And so... Uh, you know, we've had a chance to talk. You realize the extent, uh, the limitations of my intellect. So you know that the ideas <laughs> in there were done by somebody else. Um, but it talks about uh, the, uh, I would say, a, a continuous spectrum of competition, right? And so you've heard this articulated in ways, uh, phrases like gray zone competition, uh, articulated with phrases like uh, competition below the level of conflict. Really, we're having a hard time, you know, getting our minds around this. Uh, and as we as we put out in this document, it's really kind of a continuous spectrum from sort of low end military presence, even all the way up uh, the, you know, at the in most intense level of kind of high end uh, major war. Um, how we move up and down that uh, spectrum, I think, is going to be the great challenge of the future. We've got to restore agility in terms of doing that. And then uh, we've got to make sure that at the high end that we maintain the capability and the capacity to have the final word, that we can control uh, the high end of conflict and de-escalate on our terms uh, uh, as quickly as possible. So these are sort of – and then uh, the third major idea, I suppose, is that this is going to be a long-term thing. Right? We've got to do this in a way that's sustainable. We can't you know, run in the red, above the red line and uh, hope that this will be a short-term thing. We've got to make sure that this is, we do so in a sustainable way because this is going to be a long-term competition. So one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting in the report um, talked about um, achieving high-velocity outcomes. Um, can you – which included items like acquiring the kinds of platforms that are needed in today's warfare, included things like artificial intelligence and um, and being able to maintain a competitive edge in certain weapons um, systems. Um, can you talk about why there's so much energy behind behind these particular issues and what they mean for the Navy and Navy competition? I'll tell you what. what well, you mentioned it, you know, this idea of high velocity, right? And uh, things are moving very fast. Uh, technology is changing very quickly. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of uh, dynamics that are changing very quickly, including some pretty traditional things that happen at sea. Shipping, for instance, changing very quickly. 
And uh, to be relevant in this competition, you're going to have to have the agility to move at that speed, right? And that includes uh, not only thinking up great technologies, but actually uh, getting them uh, to the production line and then moving them out to the operating forces. And if we can't do that at relevant speed, we're just going to fall further and further behind in terms of material capability. And eventually, you reach a point where you're so far behind that the, uh, the cleverness of our sailors, soldiers, airmen, and Marines, uh, and they are tremendous, uh, uh, tremendously smart people, uh, it won't be enough to overcome the material disadvantage. So this is an urgent problem for the United States uh, to make sure that we can not only conceptualize these technologies, and we'll do that better than anybody, uh, but we need to get them you know, approved, funded, moved through the system quickly so that uh, we can compete at speed. And uh, particularly for some of those uh, technologies you mentioned, artificial intelligence, sort of the technologies of the information age, uh, you don't have to be first by much uh, in terms of time, but it's decisive when you're first, right? So you don't want to be second in this business, and we've got to make sure we're first. And is this an issue that goes beyond the Navy and other Absolutely. services are also emphasizing a similar point? Absolutely. And, you know, Secretary Shanahan, Acting Secretary Shanahan and, uh, you know, his team, they're on to this. We're trying to get this system to move with a sense of urgency, a sense of uh, speed that is relevant. Uh, it, it's a fundamental issue. One of the things that's happened since we were last together on, on Deep Dish is that there was actually a uh, budget passed uh, for the, an appropriation passed for the armed services. Um, and I know that that was a concern, has been a concern um, for all the services when it comes to readiness and having the resources and flexibility um, to be able to address readiness issues. This is an issue that also is covered in the press, is how ready is the U.S. military. For the state of the Navy at this at this point, um, what emphasis is the Navy putting on on readiness, and where do we stand? I, I would say it's uh, recovering readiness is our top priority, and so if we have, uh, you know, our first dollars are spent towards uh, readiness. Right? We've got to make sure that uh, we're ready to do the business safely and effectively today, uh, as as our top priority. I will say you mentioned the budget and. Uh, that's very helpful, you know, and so we're, we're very uh, mindful and grateful of the help uh, that Congress had in terms of uh, helping uh, us all to get uh, that budget passed on time. And I would say that particularly for naval forces, which uh, rely on, you know, we're a capital intensive force. Uh, we build a lot of ships, uh, we repair ships, aircraft. Uh, some pretty you know big things, and uh, all of that uh, very high-end industrial capacity uh, thrives on uh, predictability, right? And so if we can do some scheduling and fund to that schedule, boy, costs come down, predictability goes up, risk comes down, uh, we can uh, have confidence in the cost and schedule figures that uh, we budget for. And uh, so we are uh, thriving uh, with that you know, predictable, adequate appropriation and funding. And we'll continue to advocate for that because uh, you know, we, we could backslide. So I would say that readiness is on the mend. Uh, we're making definite progress uh, with the help of the uh, budgets that we've had. And uh, we, it took us a, you know, a while, a decade or so to get into this. Uh, we're going to get out uh, quicker than that, but it's still work to be done. 
So one of the biggest determinants for success of any organization is the people. And I know that this morning you had an opportunity to right here in Illinois, go see a training class graduate from boot camp. Um, and I was wondering if you could share with us what steps the Navy is taking to um, expand its recruits. Um, are you finding the, the types of people and the quality of people that are needed in order for the Navy to, to be successful, particularly as we go into things we've talked about, new great power competition, rapidly changing um, environments and, and operational systems. Yeah, Brian, you've hit on a, uh, a really key area because really none of this happens without the right people. And uh, the Navy is growing and we're bringing people in as fast as the system will permit. And so that puts a great uh, recruiting challenge on our, on our system. And I've got to kind of give a shout out to all of our recruiters. In fact, earlier this week, before I uh, came up here to Chicago, I had a chance to meet our recruiters of the year. And just, you know, what an outstanding group of people uh, to bring uh, the right folks into the Navy. We talk about great power competition, but the competition for talent is as hot as any competition I've got. And so uh, the fact that we're able to meet our recruiting goals to date uh, and do so in a way that's sort of a much more technologically sophisticated using online types of techniques. Uh, it's a much different approach than kind of your classic storefront recruiting in the mall that you might imagine. It's, a, it's an actually very sophisticated and, and they're doing a great job. So as we close, I know that the Navy is going to turn 250 years old in 2025. And by then, you'll probably you certainly not have your current position. Um, but what are you most eager to have the Navy achieve between now and, and that 250 anniversary? Well, I'll tell you what, if I uh, fast forward myself to 2025 and uh, I look back on 2019, I would hope that uh, 2019 serves as an inflection point uh, in many areas. One is that uh, we do have an inflection in terms of the speed with which we can move technology forward to, to the hands of our sailors and the other services, soldiers, airmen, the Marines, Coast Guardsmen. And so I, w I hope that we crack this nut in terms of rapid acquisition. I hope that 2019 uh, can be a very productive year in terms of uh, reconciling or mitigating some of our differences with these uh, great powers and so that we can see 2019 as a year where we both realize that this current system is truly to the benefit of everybody. It's a very play, uh, fair playing field and allows everybody to prosper in a way that is competitive but doesn't lead to conflict. And then I would uh, look back on 2019 and hope that uh, to the point of view uh, to your perspective on people, that uh, it is a year where the Navy uh, was seen uh, even more so as an organization that behaves in a manner that's consistent with its values. And so when we think about why are these young people who are so talented and could go anywhere in the world, uh, literally, why do they raise their right hand and make an oath to join the United States Navy? I've got to think that our value proposition has something to do with that, that uh, we are an organization that is dedicated to a noble cause and that our behaviors in every way are consistent with those values. 
And I would hope that uh, 2019 is a year where we can make progress in uh, making the Navy as safe a Navy as possible for all of our sailors, a Navy that is the best partner for all of our allies, and a Navy that might be the worst nightmare for our enemies. Thank you, Admiral Richardson, for coming back to Deep Dish and providing an update on important developments in the U.S. Navy and how it's preparing for a new strategic environment and new forms of competition. It's good to have you back. Brian, it's always great to be on Deep Dish. Thanks. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap on the subscribe button so that you can get each and every new episode as it comes out. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment and tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. Our research associate is Kevin Clifford. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.